Love Talk Radio. Om Shabbat Shalom, Holy Way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom, I sense your presence. Om Shabbat Shalom, Holy Way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom, I sense your presence. I sense your presence. And I am the light. Within your soul In the essence of truth and right Love makes a circle whole And here we stand in line Waiting for some sacred sign But to find the balance is the purpose of this time To restore the balance of the universal mind In the presence of my Lord of light and love Everything I see aspiring to be free And when I call to thee And come on bending knee Surrender to the all-pervading light and love Reflections of the one surrounding me with love And I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence Within and without Above and below, yeah East, West, North, and South, I sense your presence. Without and within, below and above, yeah, yeah. East, West, North, and South, I sense your presence. I sense your presence. Surrounding me with love 
For to find the balance is the purpose of this time To restore the balance of the universal mind I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence I sense your presence Shabbat Shalom, holy way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom, I sense your presence. Om Shabbat Shalom, holy way of the Most High. Om Shabbat Shalom, I sense your presence. Om Shabbat Shalom. Holy way of the Most High Om Shabbat Shalom I sense your presence Om Shabbat Shalom Holy Angel of the Most High Om Shabbat Shalom I sense your presence I sense your presence Thank you for joining me here on Activating Compassion Radio. My name is Jessie Ann Nichols-George, and I'm your hostess today. The music you heard there at the beginning of the show is I Sense Your Presence. It's by Shemshai, and that is a amazing little dynamic group that uh, I met years ago back in Arizona before anybody probably really heard of their name too much. <laughs> they were just kind of playing little venues around the area, and then now they're traveling the world, multiple CDs out, just continuing to expand their work, and it's amazing. And by the way, if you'd like to check out their work, um, you could certainly do so at www.shimshai.com. That's S-H-I-M-S-H-A-I.com, and I greatly appreciate them allowing me to use their music on their show. On this show. And I want to extend a welcome to everybody that is with us, whether you're returning and you've listened to the show before and you like what we do here, or whether this is your first time joining in and listening to the show, we do stream live in three additional places, Talk Stream Live, Stream Finder, and Ten, also known as Parent Counters Network, and I welcome everybody listening through there as well. Here at Activating Compassion Radio, what I do is I look at the different ways that compassion exists in our lives, how to remove our blocks, resistances, frustrations, and more. And some weeks I'm discussing different aspects of how compassion is in our lives, how it affects their life and the different areas of compassion, and then some weeks I'm doing more exercises and practical implementation, and then many times, like today, and as many have noted, I've got fantastic guests on the show so that you can learn about their work and how other than complement and work with compassion, and in addition to that, I do highlight different musical artists along the way. I've had Stephen Halker and Peter Cater on the show, both Grammy nominees, as well as Joe Mattson, Claire Hedin, Bruce Ciccarelli, Craig Cuella, Harold Bramstaff Moses, Stan Flickbear. And this year, I'm doing a lot of musicians around the Turn University, so I'm so to say. So next week, I'm actually going to have Jim and Ashley Tash on the show uh, of Woven Green. And on May Day, I have lined up a beautiful, ethereal uh, vocal artist, uh, Angelique Grace, or Angelia Grace, excuse me, on that. And you're going to love both of these people. So watch for those shows coming up as well. And if you hear a little noise in the background today, yes, <laughs> those of you that know me know that I am on tour. 
and I'm hanging out in the beautiful Ojai area of Southern California, getting ready to do a workshop tomorrow. I was out there last weekend as well. And uh, from here, I head on up to the Bay Area and up to Portland, uh, on over into uh, Washington, then up to Denver, Colorado. From there, I head into South Dakota and then to Illinois, followed by going down into Kansas City, Missouri. And then I'll be making my way up to Traverse City, Michigan, and then on back to the East Coast where I've got things coming in in Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, um, and so much more. <laughs> so you can follow all of those things through my website as well as uh, checking out my Genesis Clearing Statement, things like that, which you can catch in archive shows all through my website at jessiemnicholsgeorge1.com. And just a reminder, if you enjoy the show today, you can you know, tell people about it because I know I share the show a lot of times and people go, oh, my God, this is an amazing topic or I really have been wanting to learn more about this and I haven't known where to find the information or I was just going through a challenge and this is exactly what I was looking for. So you can really just, in a big way, say somebody's eyes just by clicking the share button and they can use the same thing that you use to get into the show and listen to it at their convenience. Again, they can also catch it as a podcast on iTunes or TuneIn.com. Or, you know, if they wait a little bit, sometimes it takes me up to a week or two to get it up on my YouTube channel, but I do a version for that as well. So whatever their preferences, they can catch the show in a way that they like it and that works for them. Now, a little insight here, what we like to do here on Activating Compassion Radio, or what I like to do anyway, I delve into a little book called The 72 Names of God Each Week, and this gives us a little message to just kind of reflect on, and this message also goes up on my page of the Main Street Universe tab on my website, again, jessianmicholsgeorge1.com, and that is posted up there each week, and then you can go back and reflect on it throughout the week, which is what I do. I go back and go, okay, this is my little focus I'm going to take for the week. And I'm going to work with this concept all throughout the week and, and see where it takes me. It's kind of like taking this journey of, of growth constantly and cycling through the different layers of it. And this week, Yehuda, for those that don't know Yehuda Burke, he's a Kabbalah master. And, and the reason I like his work, or one of the key reasons, is because he takes the big giant concept and he breaks it down into everyday language. And so I think that's really valuable when we're learning things and when we're developing and moving along on our journey here in life is to be able to implement it in that everyday language, that everyday piece of our life. So this week's topic, what he has for us, is the common name of God he's got to share is the depth of depth. And I love this concept. This is this is really interesting concept in a way for us to ponder. And the initial message he, he has on this is, the power of death is not limited to the physical body. The end of a friendship, the failure of a business, the dissolution of a marriage are all expressions of death. When good things are in danger of coming to an end, this name banishes death. And the insight he gives on that is, make no mistake, the one angel of death is the cause whenever good things of any kind come to an end. By attacking death at the most fundamental level, we avert many of the fatalities that strike us. These letters are powerful weapons for making that attack. With each set of eyes that falls upon this name, 
the, mem- the power of the angel of death is weakened throughout the world until ultimately the death of death takes place and immortality reigns. And the meditation he gives on this is, meditate with total conviction and certainty upon the absolute demise of the angel of death once and for all. Now, the common name, as I mentioned, is the death of death. But the traditional name on this is Nun Yod-Tah. Nun Yod-Tah. And you can, again, find that on my website, jessianmichelschorchthenumberone.com. It will be up there all throughout the week for you to reflect on. Now, a little concept or a little thought for us to delve into here before we go on break and bring our guests on today. And you're going to love our guest because, boy, he's got a lot of insight and interesting information to share with you. And every time I've talked with Stephen, it's just been like, wow, our pieces kind of go, I got this piece, but I got this piece, and, <laughs> and it all connects together in those very interesting ways. So I think you're going to learn a lot from the concepts and his knowledge base that he has to share with us. So a little insight delving into today. How often do you look to a chart or astrological influences for guidance or direction? Did you ever think that they might be telling you a story much bigger than just yourself? Have you ever taken the time to delve further into its history? Now, I have delved into Western astrology for many years and have a sampling of other types of astrology as well. And these days, we can often find several different forms and types of astrology, each with their own validity and insights to it. Astrology is something that has been a part of culture and society for so long, and wise men, wizards, mathematicians, and many others use this insight for a variety of purposes. Now, most people are familiar with astrology as it relates to that. We've been told that it is a map of the sky at the time we are born. And it is like a recipe that holds the ingredients to our individual selves. However, few really delve into the history side of astrology and its bigger impact as it relates to evolution. Stephen Lewis is one of those that does just that. And while many might be content with simply knowing basic chart casting or using the program to explore their curiosities, Stephen asks, how can you look at astrology or cast a chart and not know its history? I have to say, he makes a very good point here. And as he brings out that it is not just about us, but the planets and houses can show us what has been and what will be and how it is all interrelated and woven into our very existence and evolution. Now, of course, this is of great interest to me as a person that enjoys seeing the shifts and the changes and cycles and seasons. And what is brought up in this is that not only can the planets show us about the cycles and seasons of our lives, but they can also show us the cycles and seasons of culture, errors, and the human race. And this awakens the concept of what a small piece of astrology that most of us look at. Now, while astrologers themselves will oftentimes look at the present influences, letting us know when there will be little, uh, a little more irritation maybe among people. We might see that, for example, in upcoming times where we have several planets sitting in the sign of Aries, or challenges that will hit us with unexpected shifts and changes. There are a few that bring it together connecting time, not just as linear, 
but as an interwoven circle and cycle and simultaneous existence. And when we talk about learning from our past, it is not just about looking at the events, but realizing evolutionary periods hit with repeating planetary alignments and interactions. For example, the recent series of seven Uranus Pluto squares that we have been under the last two years also happened in the reign of Hitler and the Great Depression era. By realizing this, it gives us the opportunity to choose differently and to be a conscious of how we want to shift it. Many place themselves as a victim to the circumstances of the planet. Yet, when we learn from them, we have great opportunity to truly evolve through making different choices and not repeating the past. While many might think we are too evolved to repeat something like Hitler's name, this very mentality and control is necessized in today's time in parts of the world. And in some places, it is happening in very subtle ways. What have you learned working with the planet? And have you taken the time to see patterns between different time periods? And have you ever really delved into looking at the cycles of the planet and how they're influencing our evolution? This week, our guest focuses on a component of compassion that's related to the aspects in my book of waking up. And this reminds us to build our awareness and not just look at one piece of faith. Take the time to expand your knowledge base so that you can see more of what is happening. I'm going to take a short break, and when we return, I will have Stephen Lewis sharing his work in how astrology is part of our evolution. The song I have for you during our break is called Euphorian. It's by Claire Hedin. And if you'd like to find out more about Claire's work, you can certainly do that. And her website is www.clairehedin.com. And that's C-L-A-R-E-H-E-D-I-N. Com. And again, this song is here for you. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
Welcome back. You are listening to Activating Compassion Radio, and my name is Jesse M. Nichols-George, and I'm your hostess today. You were just listening to a song by Claire Hedin called Euphorians, and you can check out more of her work at www.clairehedin.com. That's C-L-A-R-E-H-E-D-I-N.com. And if you hear a little noise in my background, it's definitely my background and not our guest. <laughs> and I just want to um, kind of let you know with that, I, I am on the road, so I'm working with what I've got available to me today, <laughs> which is not the quietest space, but it's definitely workable, and I'm happy to have it to work from to, to bring you this really amazing guest that I have um, who's going to share some incredible amounts of information, and, and I know this is going to be a show that you're going to want to share because Stephen just blows me away with all these different pieces of information that he brings in because he brings in the history and things like that that a lot of people just kind of skip over and get to the context of them. So today I do have with me Stephen Lewis, and he is an analytical and financial astrologer. Stephen practices a hybrid of modern spiritual and medieval judicial astrology based on Germanic and Celtic paganism, Romano-Christian Romano Christianity and Arabic Islamic science. He considers himself a normal guy with an insatiable inquisitiveness who appreciates the ironic, the contradictory, and the downright bizarre. He likes to explore metaphysical questions using techniques of occult microscopy and occult macroscopy, the microscope and the telescope, because myriad infinities exist both invisible and immense. He feels that we can understand what is likely to come to be through exploring what has been while standing in the present. We will be looking at Stephen's work today in astrology as has surfaced by exploring the writings of different cultures and times. And you can definitely learn, um, well, we'll get you some contact information for Stephen, but he'll share that with you after, after he comes on and after we've started chatting. But this is a really important thing because, as I mentioned, you know, Stephen brings in these pieces of history and things like that that a lot of people skip over and getting just the concepts. And I'm going to go ahead and open up his mic today. And Stephen, welcome to Activating Compassion Radio. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for your for your very kind introduction. So happy to be here today. You know, it's, it's such a blessing, and and you know, I have to say it's. Uh, so much fun being on your show recently, and for those that missed it, you guys got to go back and listen to when Stephen interviewed me as well, because he brought up this whole dynamic of my work in working with the angels and working with the North Energy, and boy, he's got some insights on that as well. <laughs> so we're going to focus on his work today, and, and I'm just so happy to have you here, because you're just like... I don't know, the internet and every encyclopedia and things put together when it comes to historical things. And, and every time you talk, I go, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, perhaps maybe one of the choicest uh, cuts of wisdom here that your listeners might take away from the show would be this. The only knowledge in life that counts is the kind that you're packing between your ears right now. Not the kind that you can reference in a book, but the kind that you have on hand. Now, with that said, uh, today I would I might describe myself a little bit differently than all of these fancy terms. Uh, you know, it seems so interesting to me that the more advanced we get into a subject, the more complicated the subject gets, 
we're led inexorably back to so now if someone were to ask me, I would just say I'm an astrologer and just go from there. My my sin, my sin was in trying to reveal in all of those appellations, all of those names, trying to reveal the richness of the tradition that I work out of. And you know what? That's, that sort of complexity shouldn't be given away in a title. It should come out in, uh, well, in a nice conversation like you and I are about to have today. And your listeners will hear all about the Roman influences and the Celtic mythology and the Islamic influence in uh, astrology, which might surprise them. Well, and and I agree with you. You know, these titles, and and I understand that even from having to create my own title to to encompass things that I do, but as you say, you know, when you get down to it, <laughs> it's a really yeah. basic thing uh, in there. I would love yeah, to start off that by kind of sharing. For... I'm sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, I suppose I could be forgiven for wanting to make myself sound more complicated than what I really am. But, you know, now as I mature a little bit, I, I'm, I'm going to subscribe to the KISS system. Keep it simple, silly. You know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I would love for you to start off, Stephen, with a little bit about, you know, who's Stephen and how did he get into all of this astrology and, and work that you're doing right now? Sure, sure. You know, ironically, later in the interview, I'm going to talk a lot about how the study of astrology has made me aware of an intelligence way higher than my own. But what brought me into astrology was pure vanity and egotism, plain and simple. I think that's what brings anybody into astrology. And that's an, it's all just and proper for it to be that way. Um, I remember I spent many years as, as, as in, when I began studying astrology. In, in a very pleasant haze of self-discovery, and that's what astro- I think that's the that's what drew me into astrology. This I, this learning about myself. First of all, I think one prerequisite that any astrologer should have is an insatiable curiosity about oneself. Who are you, really? Uh, and you know, we can easily answer this question with all the typical superficial answers. I'm Stephen. You know, I'm a North Carolinian. You know, I'm. Five nine. I'm a Leo, and all of this good stuff. But I don't think it really uh, gets to the core of who you essentially are. Now, when I look at my birth chart, I see who I am arrayed in front of me with a number of planets and a number of signs. And so that's what drew me into the work at first: the egotism of it. Who am I? I wanted to know who I was. And eventually, as I progressed in the study, I began to uh, see alternate avenues that had been available to me previously, you see. And if I had had enough astrology at the time, perhaps I would have been able to have identified these alternate paths uh, instead of taking paths that perhaps would have been more harmful or at least not as good as they could have been. And so once I learned a little bit about myself, then I learned how to be flexible in my thinking about myself. The The definition of my identity was in flux. Am I really that way? Or, or, and, and this is an important point. This flexibility powered by the planets themselves, because each planet representing an archetype it encompasses a whole range of meanings. And so 
this gives you a great deal of flexibility in the self-definition in deciding who you really are. And so it, instead of straight-jacketing you into a finite set of possibilities, you see that you indeed have many, many choices over what you can become. You can shed your identity if, if that's what's necessary. You can be a Ted Bundy or a Pope Francis, whatever suits well, and, and that's I what got me into it. I love this aspect that you're bringing out about understanding our identity, the, the self-understanding, because I think yeah. this starting out, I know for me, there was a curiosity of, okay, how accurate is this? <laughs> you know, how can this tell me, sure. you know, what I should already know in a sense? But then as you delve more and more into it, it there is an understanding and, and there is an aspect that says, um, you know, as you start to to grow in your your path, so to say, that you start to go, wow, okay, so if this is actually there, and maybe this is one of those pieces I'm seeing, or maybe one of those pieces I'm not seeing, but other people are seeing, uh, then that's something for me to pay attention to and to learn from and to understand how to work with it. I don't think, you know, a lot of people, they can get spiked out and go, oh, you're that arrogant, <laughs> egotistical, right. you know, whatever. Uh, when they look at something that it's like, no, it's a matter of knowing, okay, if if I have this tendency to come across strong or too intense, then I need to learn how to lighten my energy up and create a balance there. Or, um, again, I think as we kind of alluded to, not just looking at, okay, this is my identity itself, but this is my identity, too, as a human being, which I know we're going to get more and more into that. So. I think it's very cool, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's an ironic thing. You know, if, if you were to look at astrology based upon what you see in magazines or even on uh, the sort of the ritzy, glossy types of websites and in the newspaper, for example, you would be thoroughly justified in writing it off as utter garbage, rot. However, it's not that simple. And your failing in this case, in the case of all the skeptics, is that they underestimate astrology and do not give it credit for being complex. Because once you enter into the true world of astrology, then you can see that an Aries, for example, doesn't have to behave like a typical Aries, you see. And uh, this partly hinges upon the deception that astrology revolves around your sun sign. This uh, and and the reason we have this misperception is because of the business angle of astrology, which I'm definitely not uh, criticizing. It's just uh, for various economic reasons that mode of astrology was the easiest one to sell to the largest number of people, and that's why it holds. But the fact of the matter is that your sun sign does not really describe you thoroughly. It describes an ideal you. There's no guarantee that you're going to get there. Your moon placement is much more telling to me, and also, especially above all else, your ascendant placement, the placement of the ascendant. Now, the ascendant is that one point on the eastern horizon, okay? The eastern horizon, the sign that was rising at the moment you drew your first breath, that is your ascendant. And it's arguably more important than your sun sign. The ascendant is an actual point. It's a degree in the 360 degrees of the circle. It is one degree. Now, without that one degree, what we have is an infinity. 
I can't do anything with that. I can't tell when you're going to have a baby, if you're going to have a baby, what gender the baby is going to be, whether it's going to be a good baby or whether or not, and the, uh, the whether or not the child is going to bring you misfortune and and and, uh, and harm. I can't tell any of that until we decide where at in this infinite circle we're going to begin. Now, once we've done that, the circle has become something uh, that used to be infinite and now is finite and measurable. Uh, that one point we use to delineate this infinity is referred to, has been referred to traditionally as the ascendant, and it's been around since more or less around roughly the time of Christ, perhaps a little bit after, a couple maybe a couple hundred years after. Definitely not as much of a history buff as I probably should be. But my point is that uh, the ancients were aware of it, and they drew up an entire methodology of chart interpretation around that. The sun. The placement of the sun was uh, not as not really so much of consequence to them. So the ascendant, that one point, that tells me pretty much all I need, a lot that I need to know about you. I will look at the placement of the planet that rules over that ascendant, and right away that'll tell me whether or not you're going to get the most important things in life to you. It's going to tell me how you're going to get those things. I mean, it's it's uh, really quite concrete and specific. To maybe put this in perspective for people, what you're saying uh, as well is it would be like somebody who is going to have a house built. And the second they purchase the land somewhere, which is like the second we're born, okay, then you could look at that piece of property and you could know how hard it is to build that house you're going to know what you have a solid foundation to work from. You're going to know Absolutely. what your your work opportunities are going to be once you, you know, uh, purchase that per piece of land. Uh, you're going yeah. to know the probability of that house house to withstand over time, and the ability to endure, or whether it's likely to have cracks, or whether you're likely to have um, scorpion infestations, or whatever, <laughs> depending on where you are. Sure. So it's, uh, it's a very similar thing there. Absolutely. Those matters are quite routine, in fact. Now, uh, when I was speaking earlier, I was kind of, you know, the implication was that I was talking about natal astrology. Natal astrology, or the, the astrology of an individual and his or her birth, that's just one branch of astrology. I specialize in all branches of astrology. Uh, the, uh, anything can be born. Everything, in fact, is born. This interview was born. If I if I wanted to, if I'd wanted to know how this interview would go, I could cast a chart for the moment that you invited me to come on the show. I would have known everything about it. But I'll tell you, some, I'll share another irony with you. The more that I study astrology, the more I come to loathe spoilers in life, and the more I enjoy just letting life unfold, good and bad. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? <laughs> Yeah, spoilers in well, real life are just as disappointing as they are in the movies. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> well, and it is. And, and I, you know, I was just bringing this up. With the fact that I think this is such a great tool for wisdom um, for us. If we, like a lot of things, if we listen to it and we pay attention, as you say, we could really know how different things are going to go and then take action accordingly Absolutely. or not or uh, or realize, okay, somewhere in this process or, or this personal year or whatever, I know 
that my finances might be a little more challenging. Therefore, <laughs> I know I really should be oh, yeah. saving up these three years leading up to this because I'm going to need that that money to take care of this upcoming year. Or I, I mean, there's so many, like you say, subtleties, and I think that's something for me. I mean, like I could just spend weeks looking at one little tiny piece of time uh, <laughs> going through the charts. <laughs> When I look at all the interactions, because my brain goes in so many, uh, you know, pieces at the same time. But, you know, like you say, it's uh, there's so much there in the moments, and you start to learn how to enjoy it. Because uh, for me, it's easier to sometimes take a look and go, okay, well, I know I'm up against these influences, and these are the challenges maybe right now, and and so I know I need to be a little more careful of of reacting or I need to right. uh, maybe put myself in a rural area while we go through the seven Pluto Uranus squares instead of being in the middle of LA where they're having all kinds of freaky police shooting things going on or something. Well, that's the useful thing about astrology. Not only would I be able to tell you about your financial future, but I'd also be able to articulate the specific uh, challenges and blockages to financial satisfaction and achievement. Uh, maybe it's another person. Whatever hypothetical uh, you can come up with now, certainly it would be revealed in the chart. Uh, I would also be able to tell you, or any good astrologer would be able to tell you when the challenge would ease. Now, here's the thing. As you mentioned, there's just so much, so much data to extract from a chart. And this is another area where the good astrologer differentiates himself because he would understand or she would understand how to separate the wheat from the chaff. Not all the testimony in the chart is going to be pertinent or apropos. You can eliminate a whole bunch of it, but certainly every last bit of it will be saying something. Even if it's saying something uh, indifferent, even if it's showing indifference, it's going to indicate some, something that you can use. The trick is to know what to discard and, and what to focus on. And fortunately, our predecessors, and one of the reasons why I, I put so much importance on understanding what those who came before me did, I have the ability now in the modern era to benefit from their collected knowledge. And a lot of it is just now coming to light thanks to the efforts of some very talented scholars, astrologers, and translators. Um, but fortunately, we have at our disposal an entire corpus of a quality of opinion that approaches legal precedent. And indeed, a lot of modern practitioners of astrology are lawyers because they're attracted to this reliance on the precedent, on the opinions of past authorities. And because of them, I understand what is wheat and what is chaff, what to discard and, and uh, what to focus on. And this way I don't waste any time because time is of the essence. Uh, you know, one of the the big elephant in the room for those who do our type of work is well you know what if you're so psychic how come you you know you don't play the lottery or whatnot well you know what I actually I don't play the lottery I consider the lottery you know I'm sort of prejudiced against the lottery for a number of reasons uh, for one thing the probabilities are against me but mainly you know I I do like to gamble I love the games and I love trading commodities and things like that astrology has helped me. Uh, indescribably in this regard. The knowledge of, of uh, astronomical cycles has been has given me an edge on the market. And frankly, I wouldn't have been able to have done it without the thousands of years of anterior opinions from the authorities that were passed along to me. You know, so for sure, the ancient tradition gives you an idea of what to expect, uh, 
identify what's important and how to ignore what's not important. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's allowed me to silence uh, silence the skeptics. Now, uh, also, it's kind of, like I said, it's hampered my my time a lot. I've had to divest myself of a lot of my clients. The type of astrology I practice is quite labor-intensive and is quite uh, probing, and it, it it's comprehensive as well. So, you know, I prioritize my trading activities with astrology and keep a – it keeps the clients on the side just so I can stay sharp in my skills of natal astrology. But my entire point with this is that doing astrology properly is quite time-consuming and it's analytic. Not so much psychic as it is analytic. And, and people wonder, okay, well, what what is so time-consuming? Well, I know that you cast things in a very specific way. I know when I used to cast charts for people, I hand-cast charts. It was not done on a computer program. And that's very labor-intensive. But even beyond that, even if somebody's not hand-casting a chart, the analyzing time is very, very labor-intensive um, when you really delve into it. And matter of fact, I stopped playing the lottery many, many years ago <laughs> because I found out yeah. on my chart, this is not going to happen for you. <laughs> so I said, oh, well, yeah, no yeah. point in wasting my money playing the lottery if that's not going to be something that's going to come through for me. Right, save myself a lot of money, and you know I think that you bring up a couple of good aspects. But one of them is learning what is important and what is not, and that can vary a little bit for each of us. There's some common threads there, but there's also um, the realization of that. And because we do have these patterns, now granted, no two points in time are exactly the same. We do still have some repeating patterns or series of things and we can tell the intensity from one time to another and right. with the little subtlety shifts like I mentioned with the Pluto Uranus first for example uh, we know that you know that set of that series of things in one time frame is could easily go one direction and yet in current times it can take a different twist or a different slant because of those other little subtleties that are different. And, sure. So I think this is something that's going to be interesting for people to hear as well. And, and like you say, you know, you really do know when to move. I actually have a couple of friends that say the market, and they're always coming to me going, okay, should I make a decision now? Could I, <laughs> should I be doing this or that? And And they're like, Man, you are like better than the financial advisors out there. <laughs> it's a matter of seeing the trends, the trends of culture and society. And as you put these pieces together, which, you know, certainly the planets are showing us, uh, these are the trends, these are directions that we're headed. You certainly know that, for example, if, if people are going to go organic, you're not going to keep investing money in Monsanto, for example, or whatever the case is. But, well, I'll share a tidbit with your listeners right now that um, this this time period right now is definitely not a good one to plan anything that's crucial in your life because we have a uh, pending total solar eclipse coming up on March the 20th. And strangely enough, even though the eclipse is in the future, when planets transit over the eclipse point, they cause things to happen. For example, 
uh, Pisces, the sign of Pisces, has for a very long time, hundreds of years, if not a thousand years, been associated with the Christians. And so when the planet Mars, signifying as any uh, student or beginning student of astrology would, would know, Mars would signify bloodshed, cutting, things of that nature. When Mars transited over the eclipse point in Pisces, um, this was exactly, this was when the uh, Islamic State or Isil or whatever they're calling themselves, that's when they beheaded the, the Egyptian Coptic Christian. So the actual point of the eclipse is, is very sensitive to transit. But my, the issue I'm trying to raise here is that eclipses have a way of making the unexpected happen. For example, during the, uh, I do a web radio show with a friend of mine, Stephen Frampton. I've had to decommission that recently because I'm just too busy, unfortunately. But during our last show, I articulated the idea that Britain and China were going to come into contact, some sort of a connection. I, I didn't know the specifics of it at the time. Um, because of the eclipse, the eclipse path is crossing over the Faroe Islands, which are off the coast of Scotland, and the eclipse shadow ends up in China. And so I I said, yeah, I don't know the exact contours of the situation here, but Britain and China are going to be uh, interfacing somehow soon. And lo and behold, it happened today. I read that the United Kingdom has, has damaged the quote-unquote special relationship it has with the United States by entering into uh, some uh, new economic zone with China, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, that that happened today, something that nobody we didn't really expect, something related, in fact, to the eclipse. So these are the sorts of things that can go wrong with eclipses. Look at the Greek ex, uh, the uh, the specter of the Greek exit from the eurozone that's looming. You know, just last week wasn't every everybody was optimistic about this. Everybody, you know, it was a big fairy tale over there in Athens. Greece is going to stay in the eurozone. Everything is going to be fine. The markets rallied. Yet here we get close to the eclipse. And these effects that I'm talking about can happen between 7 to 10 days before and after the eclipse. So that's the time window we're talking about, folks. Definitely don't refinance your house. Try not to go on vacation if you can help it, et cetera. Well, what happens this week, you know, now we see the, uh, the milk starting to curdle, metaphorically speaking. The, the specter of the Grexit is looming a little larger. You know, it's not so. It's not so. Uh, the, the the idea of a unified uh, euro economic zone that idea is no longer as certain. So, uh, knowing knowing this stuff in advance can save you a lot of money, and quite possibly can save your life. You know, this is not a time to uh, be be planning important things. Well, and and you bring up. Uh, a little aspect that uh, I've had Sharita saw on the show before that she brings up as well, and that is the fact of the pre and the post period. And most people miss that. They go, "Hey, when's that Mercury retrograde? You know, or you know, when's that eclipse going to happen?" And they forget that we have this lead up and this lead down time. And sure. when we go through these series, oftentimes we're gonna we're gonna have an, at least an equal period of time uh, that's going to be affected as the actual time of the occurrence uh, right, happening right. in there. This is and, and people forget it's not just this one little block, it's this bigger block of time that we have to be aware of. Now, the biggest intensity might be when it's active, but we still have to pay attention around that. That's true. And it's so 
is so odd because even for most astrologers, this would seem odd. You mean the event is going to come, is going to precede the astrological cause? You know, so if, even for orthodox astrology, this doesn't make sense. Yet, it's definitely the case. The effects of the eclipse very often precede the actual eclipse itself. It's uh, really fascinating. Now, you mentioned the Uranus-Pluto square, the, some of the outer planets, uh, Pluto, Uranus, Neptune. And the interesting thing about these cycles is that they represent an idea. And as the planets move, the faster planet moves away from the slower planet to the 90-degree angle, then you know, to 180 degrees away where they're facing each other, then back around to another 90-degree angle. You know, that entire cycle represents the development of an idea. And it's quite interesting to ponder. I mean, I can't say for certain. No, I don't think anybody can be 100% certain with these things. It's interesting to ponder what the idea is behind the the uh, Uranus-Pluto square. Certainly the ideas are economic in their scope, but also they have a greater geopolitical importance too, as anyone who turns on the nightly news will understand. A lot of big explosive events I was able to forecast too when I was still doing my web radio show. Uh, the explosion of the school in Mexico, for example, I'm on record as having forecast that. Uh, in the Exxon uh, Mobil. Now, I didn't mention Mexico. I didn't mention Exxon Mobil. What I mentioned was uh, a big bad accident due to an explosion of gas. You know, that's that, that's the sort of specificity we're going to get to. Uh, now, had I possessed maybe a, another decade of experience under my belt, perhaps I would have. I mean, if I had exerted myself more, I probably could have even said that it, it would have been on the West Coast or something of that nature. But still, you know, very often ballparking it can be quite useful, extremely useful. Um, and and I did was you delve into these layers, and I've done that very same thing, pinpointed, okay, here's our, our primary areas that are going to be affected, and here, you know, some of the common things that are going to run through society or things like that. And, and I've oftentimes had the information come to me 10 to 15 years <laughs> ahead of time right. of what we're in for, and then later had it verified through what's happening in the planets or things like that. And and I love that you bring up that there's an idea that this is related to ideas and certainly, you know, Uranus is unexpected things and certainly with with uh, Pluto and Capricorn we've got some unexpected upheavals of big structures and these sorts of things that you know, we know by narrowing down, in a sense, kind of like anything. You have a big general piece, and then you narrow it down, narrow it down. It's like going, okay, I need something for, you know, this formal event. And, right. You know, I need it to be this, or I need it to be that, or, you know. Uh, you know, you kind of you kind of narrow down the pieces. It's going to be in this area or this type of menu, so then that tells me this and this and that. In some ways, astrology is kind of the same, it's comes through these layers, comes through these um, pieces to it. And and I've actually pinpointed regions where we'll see more volcanic activity. I've pinpointed the issues going on in the oceans and cruise ships and things like that um, getting hit. So, yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating as you start to look at these layers. Yeah, now this particular layer, 
is about a one hundred is about one hundred twenty seven years thick. I mean that's about how long it takes Uranus and Pluto to go through this phase. Now uh, for those who are interested, for those who like technical jargon, the technical phrase for this type of movement is a synod. S Y N O D, a planetary synod. They represent the entire phase, the entire cycle of con you know, going from conjunction to sextile, square, trine, opposition, and then repeating that process during, you know, as the transiting body comes back to conjunction again. And it takes about 127 years for Uranus and Pluto to go to do this little cosmic dance. Now, one of the big ideas that's important in this entire planetary synod between Uranus and Pluto is this notion of restructuring, a radical restructuring. And because this is a mundane, you know, this is mundane astrology, this astrology of geopolitics and history. It's the restructuring of of cultures, peoples, nations. Now we can look at how this has been, how this layer has been behaving, because this particular phase, this particular cycle, Uranus and Pluto, uh, was very important and, and primary, in fact, during out uh, some of the highlights and lowlights in the development of Nazi Germany, and, and even post-war Germany, uh, the the, the uh, reconstruction of Germany. After World War II, a lot of that tied into the Uranus-Pluto uh, Uranus cycle. Same thing with the uh, misadventure in Vietnam. That transformation arose during uh, the conjunction of 1965 and 66. However, the main point I want to point out here is that, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be physical. It can be intelligent. I mean, I, I'm sorry, it can be, it can be uh, mental, intellectual. And so... The, the phase between Uranus and Pluto could very well tie into uh, the development of robotics and artificial intelligence and the virtual realities and, and all of that stuff that is the Internet of Things, for example. All of these, all of this goofy Star Trek malarkey that's now actually becoming a tangible reality. Man, I don't even know if I want to live here anymore if I have to live in a world <laughs> that, you know, where there's an Internet of Things. and You know I, what I'm saying? I like Star Trek because it's on TV. I was just saying to somebody guy. the other day, I said, you know, what Amazon is doing by sending the, the robots around to deliver your packages is so Terminator. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I don't want to deal with Amazon. It's fancy schmancy uh, robotic uh, uh, servo automatons. You know what I mean? I, you know, I said, I, I'm, I'm cool with electricity stuff, you know, and modern medicine. One little glitch in that, that robot, and man, you're lasered. <laughs> you know? That's but, what I'm uh, saying. You know, I, I like my posts. Bring up. I want to bring up something before you go on here, um, sure, which sure. is this radical restructuring that you were mentioning. And and this is sometimes part of the reason, I mean, you talk about the full cycle, and that cycle is giving us a chance to see the positive and the negative, so to say, the challenges and the blessings of this interaction, just like any relationship, there can be blessings and challenges with it. And we get to see all sides, and that's really what these cycles are doing, is allowing us to understand it from every direction. And the radical restructuring that you talk about as well, this also helps us in a way to understand maybe or make sense of why we might see certain political leaders step into position in certain points of our history, whether that was Hitler in his time or the, president, the, the different leaders that we have in the different countries now because they are the perfect fit. Whether we like them or not, they're the perfect fit to bring the restructuring about. They're, 
radical enough in their choices and what they're doing to bring about the restructuring that's needed, that's being created through these interactions. You're absolutely right. In fact, you, uh, uh, you know, you, you sort of press your thumb right there on the, on the, on the, on the bullseye. Uh, It's kind of philosophically unsatisfying to think that the people of Germany chose Adolf Hitler, that somehow Adolf Hitler, for example, was what Germany needed at that time. But who are we to uh, to judge spot in the sun right now? We lack the perspective of uh, thousands of years. Uh, you know, we're here now. We're not in the future. We don't. Un- there's a lot we don't understand. And the fact is that any leader of any nation, be it an Adolf Hitler, be it a Roosevelt, is... Uh, the the expression of the collective need and desire of that nation at that time, whether we like it or not, whether it conforms to our perishable set of ethics, which has morphed and transmogrified many times since I've been alive. I'm only 40, for crying out loud. And already the uh, set of ethics I'm supposed to be following as an American has changed significantly a few times already. So I, I don't put any faith in that. My ethics are not going to, they're going to come from a different source, something perhaps hopefully with a little bit more staying power than what I've been presented with in this society, this transitory uh, society that we live in, the civilization that we live in now. But, you know, my, my point is that uh, the leaders we choose, and this is so interesting to me because we think of our leaders as being powerful people, but the fact is uh, when you study astrology, you realize that they're only, they're no more, uh, free-minded than we are. They have a certain automaton nature to themselves. They're they're fulfilling their function just like you and I are. Now, this all brings into the, the, the whole notion of culpability. You know, if there were no Judas, would there be Christianity? Probably not. So therefore, how can we condemn Judas? That's the that's the core of the uh of the philosophy that that I'm sort of uh, extending here. You know, so one thing I've learned studying astrology is that if to eliminate the good is to guarantee, I'm sorry, to eliminate the bad is to guarantee the death of all that's good. Uh, you know, there's a balance in nature, and the, the crap that we don't like is an important part of that balance. Now, you know, I, I, I've been, I'm writing a, bl- a little blog piece now called Thank Goodness for the Badness. You know, my idea on that is, hey, if I get a little bit of bad luck now, I'll gladly take it because I can sort of bleed off, you know, some of what I could be getting. You know, we all have to have some some malarkey happened to it. You know, I'll take what I can get and be grateful that it's that it's not any worse. So our leaders are no more uh, free of 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 that than you and I are. And, and it's, you know what? It's, it's going to be interesting like the, to see what happens. The universe is doing this dance, and it says this is what needs to come to be in the universe right now. This is the energy that's here. Now it doesn't look at things in terms of good or bad or positive or negative. It just says this is what will best fulfill this need. And right. boom, here's the here's the person that's resonating <laughs> at that need. Now, I don't want people to think we don't have any choice in the matter because just because the universe says here's the here's the uh player in the game that can best fulfill this need or the actor that can best play the role or whatever the case is, we still have that choice to say, okay, 
this is what needs to be done, what are we going to do about it? If radical uh, restructurization needs to be done, and this is the person that will bring it about, we still have that choice as people to say, okay, but we're going to vote this way or we're going to vote that way or we're going to put our money here or put our money there. So we still have power of choice even amongst this vibrational picking by the universe. Yes. Yeah. Am I still there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought we got cut off. Um, <laughs> you know, the the interesting thing with that is, sure, we have a lot of free will. Um, one way I like to to compare it is, you know, think back to one of your favorite television shows that had a long run, like seven or ten episodes. And I'm sure, without even knowing what the name of the show is, I'm sure there was at least one show like this where, wherein one of the heroes, one of the good guys, had a couple of seasons where he or she was a bad guy, a villain. You know what I mean? You have, you, has that ever happened to you? Or I can't think of a, you know, I don't really watch that much TV, but I guarantee you it's the, it's the case. Or conversely, let's say that in our favorite show here, it's been going for seven seasons. Maybe the bad guy has a couple of seasons where he's a good guy. You know, it's Superman fans. They might be familiar, you know, with that period of time in Superman's history where they did the bizarro flavor of Superman, where he was a bad guy. My point is that when you take an enchainment of reincarnated lives, and you consider that as a set of seasons, then there are going to be episodes, there are going to be entire seasons wherein you might be the bad guy. You know what I mean? Well, now, why? And, and that's true. Well, why even, would in your, uh, even in your positive shows, you've got your characters who make some bad decisions, right? They go back and they revisit a relationship from their past and try to make it work again. And, and this is the sure. same thing that happens in our planet. Uh, we go back and we revisit things or people from our past might show up. That's right. He might not go back to revisit it during that particular episode, but maybe the next episode, maybe the week after that. And he might go the rest of the season without making the right changes in his behavior. But it could happen next season. In other words, he might not be the next life or the life after that or after that or after that which is fine with the creator because the, you know, the creator isn't bound by a concept of time. We only think of an enchainment of lives as being uh, taking up a lot of time because we're fooled into thinking of time as something binding upon us. But it only binds upon us because we are hybrid creatures, half animal and half spirit. You know, but from God's perspective, we're actors and our entire life is just a 30-minute sitcom. Now, uh, you know, after the sitcom is over with, chance that, you know, next week there'll be another episode, and then there'll be an entire season, and then there'll be an entire box set of seasons, and within that box set, you're going to experience just about everything there is to experience. You're going to be a complete rear end. You're going to be a complete uh, good Samaritan. You're going to be rich. You're going to be poor. You know what I'm saying? You're going to be an animal lover, and you're going to be a cannibal. You're going to be everything there is. You're going to run the gamut of, of the entire human experience, um, and the question is why? Well, why would Superman fans want to see Bizarro Superman, a bad guy Superman? And I'll tell you why. Because those fans were bored. Maybe God can get bored with you. Has that ever crossed anybody's mind? I mean, you know, I don't know anything. I don't know. I don't purport to be an expert about the creator of the universe. I don't automatically invest that creator with uh, goodness or, or even uh, 
you know, even uh, complete intelligence. You know, uh, the point is that morality and ethics might they, it's better, perhaps more useful, uh, more elegant and sophisticated to conceive of ethics in a grander time scale than one pitiful human life, bookended as it is by infinity. Yeah, and I think that, you know, again, we've placed so many concepts on things, and there's so many layers you can get into with that. Um, you know, as you say, I don't I don't think right. the creator really judges so much in the sense of good and bad and right and wrong and these sorts of things. It's a matter of this is bringing enjoyment, that's bringing enjoyment, and what brings one person might in, might one person enjoyment could be totally appalling to somebody else and vice versa. And, um, you know, as you see, when you get into ethics and things, it's, it's about choosing an experience. Not necessarily just sure, choosing an experience to have uh, in there. And I, and I think that, you know, there's, there's this aspect that we're always shifting and changing and choosing what we most need to experience, whether we're conscious of that or not, um, conscious of that. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, looking at looking at someone's birth chart, you know, I like to think that I have a, a, a basis upon which to speculate what this person's choices are going to be. And, you know, that kind of uh, situation sort of kind of brings us back to square one, because if I can have some sort of an out, uh, an idea based upon probabilities, based upon astrology, of what your choices are going to be. You know, it raises the philosophical question of whether or not those choices are really there at all. Now, at the end of the day, I think it's sort of like asking how many angels will dance on the head of a pin. You know, individually, sure, we have quite a bit of free will, but the concept of fate is quite complicated. There are many different kinds of fate. Uh, there's the fate of being born nearsighted or being born with a fatty liver. There's the fate of, you know, picking up a heroin syringe. There are two different types of free will in each case. Namely, in the first case, there's no free will. You can't help it that you were born with a fatty liver. You can't help it that you were born with a sixth pinky, you know. Uh, but you can help it if you decide to pick up a heroin syringe and inject yourself with, with poison. So there are different kinds of fate. Yet the the drug addict... Sure, we like to say he has free will, but by the same token, we we envision free will as being an all-or-nothing type of a situation. Studying astrology, I see it as uh, a, a thing of, of ratios and proportions. The drug addict, based upon his birth chart, certainly has free will, but not as much as you and I have. Well, and, you know, the, and the ancients would have seen this as a curse. Is, is that, you know, that that person was born in a sense without a free will because they were born into a pattern of addiction, which, right. you know, you could go all different directions. Well, the soul chose that and this and that before sure. coming into the incarnation. But on the other hand, the free will, I think, comes into, okay, these are the tools you have. These are the pieces you have to work with. And what are you going to do with them? Um, exactly. That's where no. the choice comes in. It's not so much that... It, it's totally faded, and 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 every choice that we have is already decided. Um, it's a matter of okay, I have a choice, and I can sit in confusion if I'm a Gemini and never make a decision, or I can try a lot of different things and find 
something that's going to work for me. Um, right. You know, can go a lot of different directions with what we're given to work with. In that's the approach so, I like to take. Yeah, I don't let my clients use the excuse of, well, I'm a, I'm a this, or I'm a that, I'm a Leo, or I'm a Sagittarius, and so I'm supposed to blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't, I, but the value of understanding astrology is that, you know what, I can deviate, I can elect to deviate from the pattern. There's a great power in that. You know, so, now. Absolutely, there's huge power, and, and, and every sign has its challenges, and again, it's assets that are strengths to it, so you can sit there and go, yeah, well, you know, I'm the lazy lion who likes to roll around in the sun, and that's why I don't get anything done. Or I can say, I'm a leader. I'm a lion. I'm a leader. And I'm going to exactly. choose to exercise my leadership and yes. stand my ground here. Um, and, uh, earlier, and in the uh, earlier, I mentioned how important it is to understand the range of different archetypes that a planet can encompass. And you just it demonstrated why that is important because there is a variety. You know, sure, I can be the lazy Leo or I can be the leader Leo. You know, I do have that choice of it. There's a shadow side and a light side. Interestingly, once we get to the level of the collective, the masses, there is a lot less, if any, free will because the masses are utterly predictable, believe it or not. They don't have much free will. They are very, very susceptible to the machinations of fate. It makes sense. What is my free will when it's stacked up against 300 million other Americans? It's nothing almost. It's irrelevant. <laughs> so it's a little bit easier and, to make predictions for the for the collective. And and that's the interesting that's the interesting piece I think when we talk about evolution. And I think that's the piece that brings a lot of people into feeling so-called defeated because they sit there and say, I'm one person. How am I possibly going to take on a big corporation like Monsanto? How am I possibly going to take on McDonald's or whoever it is? Because that massive amount of energy is, you know, and you run into so many conflicts there, and people go, "How could they be so protected? It's all because of their money, or this or that, and their, you know, their, their power of numbers." But on the other hand, it's kind of like, "Yeah, we might not like Walmart, but how many small towns are they providing an entire economy for?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, the fact is, I might not like something at all, but it's there, you know, and I can't deny the fact that it's there. The fact, for example, that in the in the 2020s, Uranus is going to transit through Gemini. I don't like that fact. Uranus, every time Uranus has transited through Gemini in American history, there's been serious war. Uranus has yet to go through Gemini, and there not be a war in America. So am I nervous? Sure, I'm nervous. Uh, at that point, Uranus will be uh, straining to shoulder its way up to the opposition with, with Pluto. That's going to be a big old showdown as well. And at this time, Pluto is going to be going through, he's in Capricorn now, but uh, you know, pretty soon, and this is going to be before, uh, right? You know, before Uranus gets into to uh, Gemini, but you, before that happens, Uranus is going to enter into the place where it held in the American birth chart in the second house. So that's that's going to represent an economic transformation in America, right there. I guarantee it. It's going to probably represent either a power grab, long long-lived 
financial institutions in America, as symbolized by the sign of Capricorn, Capricorn representing uh, institutions of great longevity, stone, uh, adamantine things that never decay, etc. And uh, Pluto, Pluto's transit to his natal position in that sign is either going to represent a power grab by those types of institutions, or it's going to represent the dissolution, the the abolishment of those institutions. You know, it could be. Yeah. Again, I'm speculating, ma'am. And well, and and I've always, I I keep seeing a crashing of a lot of big corporations uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, coming in, I mean, we're seeing a lot of the younger generation kids starting to take over, and you have two sides. You have them being much more financially extreme, and you have those that are saying, "Whoa, I'm not playing this this game." There's an ethics factor here, and uh, you know, we're going to take a big chunk of this money and do something to help the world. So there's, you know, I really see there's a there's a couple of different dynamics that, that are happening there as well as uh, many people who are coming on saying, uh, hey, uh, you know, this is this is not in alignment. We're, we're not finding this in alignment with divine energy or whatever, so, you know, we're, we're going to okay. stop feeding the corporation, so to say. I'll tell you what my prediction is. Based upon the astrological dynamics here, my prediction is that over the next 2,000 years, that you're going to see that impulse that you just described, you know, redistributing wealth to the poor, uh, rather socialistic or even outright communistic type of impulse, you're going to see that blossom. It's going to blossom all over the place. It's going to blossom in capitalist societies, and it's going to thrive. It won't be called socialism. It won't be called communism. Already we see it at work in America in a huge way. If you think that you're a free person living in America, you've got another no thing coming. There are tons of regulations over what you can and cannot do, down to the community level, down to telling you when to cut your grass, uh, you know, things of that nature. So what we're going to see is an advance in socialist ideologies and the governments of the world, no matter what kind they are, because it doesn't matter if you're a republic or or uh, a dictatorship or anything. What it boils down to is being ruled by a handful of people. That's what it boils down to. And they're going to be very, very happy with uh, the urge to do uh, philanthropic things with these humanistic, socialistic types of urges to equilibrate the playing field and make all human beings equal. Which is a ridiculous so, uh, motion. I mentioned this but, very thing as I've traveled around, and and I've had people, you know, they're coming in saying you can only park someplace for two hours. My show is two hours, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can't. Right. I need more than two hours of time to set up the computer, get logged in, do everything, you know, put the show together, run the show, and then break everything down. I mean, and this is commonplace. I've had police run my tags because they felt like I was in a parking lot for too long. Um, yeah. We need to wake up. But here again, as you say, I've actually seen that, that heavier uh, socialistic, communistic um, mentality. I see that coming in heavy actually in the next five years. And why is it coming in? It's because we're sitting back being so complacent. So it's the only... We have to have the balancing extreme to wake us up, to to move us into our own action. And if we're not going to take action, then we're going to be receiving 
other people felt. I tell you, one of the reasons why I'm I'm making this, you know, speaking these ideas is because uh, of the the age of Aquarius. Uh, this is going to last well over two thousand years, and even not to get too scientific about these things, but the age of Aquarius is more than just a song, uh, sung by a troubadour of hippies back in the sixties or whatnot. The age of Aquarius is an actual period of time determined by some sort of celestial movement, a celestial movement so grand, so titanic in scope, that a lot of people even today still can't understand it. I'm talking about the precession of the equinoxes. And what it does, it essentially shifts our entire reference of zodiac over a degree every 72 years. And that pointer is pointing at Aquarius. Now, what a lot of people don't understand is that it's not just the age of Aquarius. What the age of Aquarius describes is merely where the ascendant is. And I, I, when I say ascendant, I'm speaking more metaphorically than anything else. Earlier, I described the ascendant as a point in the circle that was coming up, was rising when you were born. This is that same concept extrapolated to the nth degree, okay, to Star Trek proportions. Suffice it to say, what we need to understand now for the purposes of this discussion is that it's an actual chart that's going to apply for over two millennia, over 2,000 years. And Aquarius is the ascendant. That represents the people of the world. Now, if you look at the tenth house of this chart, right, the government, the the world governments for 2,000 years is going to be shown by the sign of Scorpio. Okay? Uh, And let's just say it's not going to be a Smurf cartoon. Scorpio is one of the more troubled signs in the Zodiac because it's ruled by Mars. Uh, In in the type of astrology I practice, you know, there are plenty of gray areas, but when you need to, you can stick to the black and whites and get very far. Mars is one of the villains. Mars is a bad guy. To deny this is to deny the fact that anything bad ever happens to anybody at all. A patently ludicrous observation. And this is perhaps one of the chiefest benefits traditional astrology has given us. It has restored to us the notion that Saturn and Mars are villainous, or they can be, let me say that. There are contexts where they can actually be uh, quite benevolent as well. And incidentally, there are certain contexts where planets like Jupiter and Venus are always assumed to be uh, benevolent. There are certain contexts where they can be quite harmful as well. But by and large, Mars rules over the world's governments for the next several thousand years, and uh, you know, I don't expect that to be to be pleasant. Also, the seventh house in this archetypal chart is Leo, uh, which describes the war, the sorts of warfare that's going to be going on. You know, and first of all, it's going to be relentless. It's going to be fixed, which it pretty much has. I mean, you know. You can you can probably count the number of peaceful periods in the last century on on, on one hand. I, I spent the I spent my entire developmental life in a pretty much in a state of nonstop war. You know, America has known nothing but war for pretty much ever since the beginning of the last century. So that's probably going to be that way for well, two thousand years. And and, and this is interesting because when we look at this, I mean, while we might think of Leo and Pluto is being very different aspects, or Scorpio being very different aspects, I should say, um, in there. You know, they're, they're both this kind of aspect that they can be your best friend or your worst enemy, <laughs> depending on <laughs> well, where you're you know, at with them. 
And this is where ethics, I think, is going to play in really big with that kind of Scorpio-Pluto kind of energy uh, that's that's going on. And, um, you know, as, as you say, it's, you know, Leo's got a lot of pride in the, and it's going to protect and defend and it's going to do what it needs to do to hold its rulership in things. But yeah. as you say, I mean, they both have their different sides because sometimes we need those quick turbulent birth to come out oh, sure. to make a sudden change. And like you say, you know, it's, it's not always it's not always one side. There's there's multiple pieces to, to this interaction and it's it's very interesting that you're bringing this up and I'd love for you to, to continue um with what you're sharing here. Well the interesting thing is that when we talk about the the zodiacal age, the age of Aquarius, the age of this, the age of that, we're moving backwards in the zodiac. So the next age after the age of Aquarius is the age of Capricorn. And you know what I think is going to happen? It's going to be an exact 180 where, because Capricorn is like the exact opposite of Aquarius in terms of materiality. You know, Aquarius is ideological. Aquarius is uh, radical a lot of times, even though it's quite, it's a difficult sign all in its own, but suffice it to say, Capricorn is quite status-seeking you know, okay. Aquarius is not status seeking. You can't be a socialist and seek status. But but Capricorn and other, if Aquarius is communistic in its orientation, Capricorn is certainly capitalistic in its orientation. So I think after after a protracted period of uh, of this humanitarian impulse, human beings are going to kind of go back to being snotty and hating each other again. They're going to return to becoming uh, elitist. You know, and and that holds. That, that makes sense to me because uh, you know. The the pendulum always swings back the other way between two extremes. Now, going back to what and you were saying about when, Scorpio, I'm sorry. Go when ahead. do we move into the age of Capricorn, Stephen? Goodness gracious! Uh, now you're wow, time to break out the math. It's it's going to be <laughs> well over four thousand years from now. So uh, oh, unless okay. so not unless anybody in your but... audience has a secret they're not sharing, I don't think any of us are going to be around to witness that. <laughs> Unless you're planning on coming back at that time. <laughs> well, you know, we might be back. I mean, I, hey, I, I pretty much believe Never know. Uh, the well, the philosophical underpinning of uh, of traditional astrology, at least, is is uh, Neoplatonism and Neoplatonism credence and believed in reincarnation. Believe it or not, a different type of uh, reincarnation than Hinduism propounded, and and the, you know, different from the sort of reincarnation that that. Uh, uh, Hinduism through proxy of hippies, you know, uh, uh, you know, expounded in America, but it's still a concept of reincarnation. They believed in uh, also uh, they had a, a very pleasantly numerolo- numerological uh, concept of what God was. You know, God being the number one, and uh, a, d- a different type of God being the number two, and and, and you know, going on down the line, and. Uh, you know, from this perspective, all of the planets, the entire chart is seen as basically the ideas of God. These are ideas that God has had. Now, the most liberating, the most powerful thing about astrology, if you ask me, is that it says beyond all else that God is an intelligent creature. Whatever it is, and I don't purport to really understand what it is, whatever it is, uh, we I don't think we've been giving it credit for being smart enough. Okay, so in my opinion, Astrology is nothing less than God's automation system. Okay, uh, billions of years ago, the Big Bang happened. So the fact that 
uh, Pluto would be retrograde at 27 degrees of Capricorn on July the 4th, 1776. That fact was already set in stone from the first motion of the Big Bang billions of years ago. So in other words, the fact that God wanted Pluto to be in the second house in Capricorn in America's chart, that fact was already sort of written right there on the package of the Big Bang. The fact that your son was going to be at X degrees of Pisces, you know, when you were born, that fact was written into the Big Bang billions of years ago. God already had the idea of Jesse Ann Nichols George billions of years ago. Okay. These are the ideas of the Creator. Now, God doesn't have to be all concerned about you individually. He's got you on autopilot. You came, you were supposed to come at a certain time, and you came, and God's not going to intervene unless it's necessary. You know, the same way the same way that any human would do. Because, again, as above, so below. This is perhaps the default occult axiom. It's kind of interesting to think about that it's kind of like, okay, this has been created, and now it's kind of in this semi-autopilot stage sure. because it's taking care of itself. Now, of course, there's sure. pieces that can influence that based on our vibrational energy that can take it one way or another way but the influences are going to continue um sure. you know just as there's going to be you know x and x number of hours of daylight at a certain time of year and x number of hours of daylight at another time of year or this sort of thing um those cycles are set in motion and they're going to continue with or without us whether we like it or don't like it <laughs> you know, the That's only right. question is where are we going to vibrate to, you know, guide it towards this experience versus that experience maybe. Um, but as you say, you know, it's, it's kind of like this cycle is there and it's going to live out its cycle and it's turning and it's shifting. And, yeah, but we're not know, necessarily they, totally helpless in this process. Think about it. Again, fix it. Humanity enjoys automating things. Think how how useful automation is to us. If it's useful to us, why wouldn't it be useful to the Creator? Why wouldn't it? Certainly, God is fond of automation. He has to be. It would nothing else would make sense. Now, could I be wrong? Sure, sure. When, one, the biggest comfort of all is that one day I'll find out. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, but and that's I'm not the macrocosm microcosm principle. Uh, that's part of how we understand what's greater than us. Uh, we right. something's useful, not useful. The experience that we have by it uh, also gives us insight, you know, to the to what is beyond us, beyond our world of understanding. Uh, and and I think that's probably part of why you felt so much in the macrocosm, microcosm kind of principle sure. in the universe. Well. You know, it's interesting. I think that we spiritualists err when we focus on the eternity that comes after death. We very rarely focus on the eternity that preceded our birth. You know, think about it. Where were you at in 1865, you know, floating through a big plasmic ball of limbo, you know, through the void? (laughs) You know, where were you at in 1865? It's a serious question. Your listeners should take some time to ponder. Were you in pain? Or, you know, were you uncomfortable? So at the, the very worst-case scenario is, uh, you know, once we tra- transit over to the other side, then 
you know, will it at the very least be free of worry and anxiety and pain and all this good stuff? But when I was a boy, four, three or four years old, I remember staring in the mirror and marveling over the conditions of my life, the big, you know, the big roulette wheel. And that's what I see the natal chart as, sort of like a big, huge, complex roulette wheel. Where did the balls fall? Where did the little planets fall into what slots? And, and I remember marveling over that, looking at myself in the mirror and just being amazed at the fact that I was Stephen Lewis, born in North Carolina to Stephen and Donna Lewis, you know, born into the circumstances that I was born in. And I think that's because we as children come into this life with the residue of the cosmos still dripping from us. We are very close to the in-between world, and we, we, we have a stronger connection to it, a connection, a sort of spiritual umbilical cord that is severed through the process of adulthood and maturation. Certain talented adults are capable of negotiating this maturation process. I'm sorry? It's it's interesting that you bring that up because I remember, too, as a young child in that age range, every time we'd take a trip to the forest or things like that, and I was just amazed looking at the trees or looking at things going, my God, does anybody get the magnificence of this creation? Does anybody get the magnificence of us being on this road at this time? And, like, I knew it. You know, even then it was like it was like this world was so magnificent in so many ways. And even in the challenging days, it was like back then I knew enough very consciously, and I'm not saying I don't know it now, but, I mean, it's a, it's a different perspective of it all, Uh I knew enough to say, oh, this is just one little glitch. It's no big deal because now I'm headed for something really great. And, hey. um, I mean, I might even go. Yeah, that, that wonder, that awe, that being able to look at the world. And, and I encourage people to go back and think about that connection because it is a pure connection. We're not, you know, we're not so much into this world. And we need to, that's part of the tapping into the childhood or childlike enthusiasm is to get inspired by how magnificent everything that had to come together to create that one little piece. And that's something I bring up when I'm touring on my adventure days, is imagine what it took to create this in such a view. Yeah. I mean, you want to hear something really interesting, Jesse? Something that's really kind of, of kooky if you think about it? You know, your your birth chart is still going to continue to say amazing things. You can, In other words, let's say that uh, you come to me and you're my client, and uh, and you know you have a son or whatnot. You have a child or a daughter, and let's say, God forbid, you know you you go ahead and shuffle the mortal coil. You move on to the next episode or what have you. I can still use your natal chart to understand what's going to happen to your children. You see, this is a very interesting thing. the The birth chart it shows. You know, it doesn't die just because you die. There's something even if we even if our identities die with us, even if we become something else after we reincarnate, the the, the, the your birth chart, Jesse and Nichols George, that birth chart is going to uh, can remain operative forever, uh, theoretically. You know, and perhaps perhaps the among the most rewarding. Branches of my study was in the astrology of pre-birth. You know, the ancients had many elegant rectification tools to get the right birth time down, and you know, to get the right pro- the proper birth chart for this or that native. And they wrote extensively about the astrology of pre-birth, the astrology of conception, and 
you know, when I look at some of those charts, for example, the the lunation charts, the moon charts, etc., that came just before you were born, I found that what they say about the soul that's about to be born is quite uh, accurate and and illuminating. Well, it, you know, it's very interesting that you bring that up because it, when I work with people, and every now and then I, I have some people wanting to delve into their past lives, and that's one of the ways that I delve into past lives. Um, is through looking at their current influences because we are always incorporating those pieces. It's like getting that piece of knowledge that you learned 20 years ago. And whether it may not be totally active in your life right now, but you're still using that knowledge that you learned 20 years ago. Like that knowledge that you learned in grade school of how to add things like that. Now, you may not be a mathematician today. You may not be adding something every single day, but that math still comes into play and it still comes into being valuable. And I've had many times people say, oh, my gosh, I completely resonate with that culture or I really have had a draw to that culture. And, you know, and, and it's there's these balancing factors. So, yes, it has to incorporate everything that we've been through prior to now in order to create the now. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, everything that happened prior to now is definitely a prerequisite and plays its part in the grand scheme of things. Now, just because I I talk a lot about traditional astrology and and love it, definitely doesn't mean that I ignore modern astrology. That would be foolish. And um, among the the modern purview, an author and an author and astrologer Stephen Arroyo wrote, wrote an excellent book called The Astrology uh, Karma and Transformation, and in his writings he teaches a, uh, something called the psychic trinity of houses. It's his thinking. It's the stance of modern uh, psychological astrology that the house four, house eight, and house twelve are uh, reservoirs of all your past experiences, every incarnation you've ever had, every thought that any incarnation of yours has ever had, any experience, good or bad, that any incarnation of yours has ever had, it's all shown by these three houses, the psychic trinity, the water trinity of houses, house four, house eight, and house 12. These represent the aggregate of of uh, karma and, ex- and, and experiences throughout your, your incarnation. And so those of you who are listening, uh, you could do worse because I, I do favor the do-it-yourself approach. You know what I mean? That way, but at any rate, check out your fourth, eighth, and twelfth house if you're curious about the about what that corpus of accumulated experience and memories of yours are like. Look at the rulers of those houses and where they're placed to understand how that body of memory and experience is manifesting in your life right now, whether it's doing so harmoniously or it's impeding your progress. Because I can assure you, most of the time, most of the time, there's always a way around uh, troubling configurations in the chart. And until you're aware of those, these these uh, side paths, you know, there's nothing, no guarantee that anything's going to stop you from blundering down the wrong path that you're on. There's nothing and to prevent he, that. God, because God's got all eternity for you to get it right until you pass the yeah, course. And, God's not going to pass you to keep your sports eligibility. <laughs> <laughs> and as you say, you know, there's always ways around these things, but it's sure. a matter of understanding 
the components that are there in the first place so you know how to do the workaround. It's kind Absolutely. of like if a certain road is going to be shut down that is going to get you from point A to point B, then, you know, if you if you don't look ahead of time, you're still going to run into the roadblock and you're going to have to figure it out. Or you can look it up and realize that that road is blocked and you need to take a different direction to it. Absolutely. And, you know, for whatever reason, you may need to slow down more this lifetime, which may be why you have a lot of things that are restrictive in your chart. Now, it's, it's always interesting that uh, every time somebody runs my chart, uh, whether it's Western astrology or Vedic astrology or, or Eastern astrology or whatever it is, they always look at it and go, you're done. You've completed karma. Uh-huh. It's like you're you're done. Your incarnations are done, <laughs> and it always kind of blows them wow. away. They always think like they're going to come and share some big piece of information with me that I don't know, and and then they look at my chart and they go, "Never mind. I have nothing to tell you." Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of That's... it's kind of funny. Yeah, well, it's an important thing to do because you know, in a lot of the training I've received, I've learned how to sort of gauge the spiritual grade of the person because you know you you have to be careful that you don't that you don't uh you know you have to treat different people differently uh you know what i mean it would be kind of inappropriate for me to counsel someone who is of a superior spiritual grade to me so i'm always looking out for that sort of stuff too and and it's i'm still fascinated that you can even see that in the chart you know what i mean that such a thing would be perceptible in a chart but not only can not only is it possible to to detect somebody's spiritual grade, but also to see their their entire morality and scruples, what kind of person they are. That and that's the biggest gift astrology has given me. Um, this it's not if I get your birth chart, it's not easy to pull the wool over my eyes. I'll know. I'll know about you. <laughs> you know what I mean? That sort of stuff. <laughs> it won't be able to be hidden. <laughs> and there's, that's another thing no too, because there's another. Even. Right. There's another branch of astrology out there that I haven't really spoken much about called horary astrology. And what it it's, all it does is answer questions. You know, you, you have a question, you cast a chart for your for that time and your and where you're at right now, and you answer your question from the resulting chart. Careers have been made off of this. Careers. One into one funny story is that uh, one of the gentlemen that I learned this trade from, a man, a man named. Guido Bonatti, who wrote around the uh, in the 13th century, wrote an encyclopedia of astrology called Liber Astronomiae. He made his living, uh, obviously, as an astrologer, doing a lot of horary astrology. And it's so funny because in his writings, he he presents a lot of case histories of clerics, right? And they're romantic foibles, which is quite interesting. And, you know, on a couple of occasions, he mentioned how to tell what's going to happen to a priest child and things like that, and you're thinking, man, were these priests even supposed to be having children? But Bonatti, who had these priests and clerics as clients, he was privy to all of their human foibles, you see. And because of that, you know, he was able to pass along to us astrologers very many ways to detect and discern hypocrisy and bluffing and things of that nature. And, and so, people should not underestimate this because most, for example, world leaders, political leaders, um, CEOs of companies, a lot of right. a lot of people think, oh, this is poo-pooed out and they don't pay attention to this. Most of them are pissed by their astrological charts. 
Sure, sure. A lot of them have astrologers themselves. Ronald Reagan actually made policy decisions based upon astrological advice. And in Asia, it's widespread, especially Southeast Asia, countries like Burma and even India. You know, so in you know, Indian astrology is very similar to the traditional astrology I practice because uh, those astrologers in those days they they engaged with one another quite a bit due to the to the Silk Road and the proximity of of uh, places like Iran, which was known back then as Persia, to India and things of that nature. There was a, a very fruitful cross pollination of ideas, and all of this ended during the so-called Age of Enlightenment, Age of Reason. Uh, you know, so and and the modern astrology we practice today, in essence, develops completely bereft of its tradition. It's like a bastard child who doesn't even know its own parent. You see, it has no conception of the of, of what it emerged from. And I'll tell you right now, what it emer- what European astrology uh, was before this this season of ignorance descended upon it. It was just like Vedic astrology. Almost no difference. You know, a lot of people don't realize that they don't understand. Yeah, they don't realize how closely tied Vedic astrology, also known as Jyotish, they don't realize how closely Jyotish is aligned with true uh, Western astrology. And, and it's interesting to delve into it. And, you know, at some point I'm going to look further more into my Vedic uh, areas of things because uh, I, I've had some mixed results with it, in all honesty. And, and I think some of it is I just haven't seen enough of the pieces put together and really delved into it enough. Uh, to look yeah. at how it all coordinates, but my sun sign literally changes from Western yeah. astrology to Vedic astrology. Like my my natal birth sign uh, being uh, started the 13th from November, um, sure. and in Vedic astrology, I'm I'm a Libra, not a Scorpio. Yeah, yeah. The reason for that is that in Vedic astrology, they they uh, see all of the zodiac signs. They're 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 stars that are everything's traveling in the universe. You know what I'm saying? So if you point up in the sky where Taurus is, it's not there anymore. It's moved. It ties back to that concept I introduced uh, earlier when I was speaking about the uh, age of Aquarius. It's called the precession of the equinoxes. The entire reference system shifts about a degree every 72 years. And the the Hindus or the the practitioners of Jyotish, that's the system that they use, the one that is actually moving. Uh, and it might seem on the surface superior if you do not take into account the importance of the archetype. It doesn't really matter that Taurus isn't up there anymore when you point to it. That's the Western view. That was you know that's that's the Western view, and I hold to it. I hold to it now. Sure, Vedic astrology is great. The fact is, you can use both systems to great effect. And uh, you know, the reason for that is because of the deeper, the deeper philosophical underpinning of astrology, the the nature of the creator, and and all of that stuff that we talked about earlier. You know, so uh, they're yeah. they're both good. One 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 thing I like about Hindu astrology is that it uh, it it really relies a lot upon the moon. I, I use the moon a lot in my work for choosing the best times to do something. Uh, you know, I can elect when to put your house on the market, for example. And, I can and elect, people, and you should – go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, people underestimate the, the influence of the moon 
in there because oh, yeah. with the moon dictating sure. our emotions, uh, that our emotions are going to dictate other things like our thoughts, and it ties. You know, oftentimes we're going to act based on our emotions more than we're going to act based on logic, for example. Um, sure, and sure. if something doesn't feel right, if we're not happy with it or things like that, then, uh, you know, that's certainly going to create a lot of serious influences as well. The moon was given rulership over all materiality in the ancient tradition. Everything material came through the moon, and it's for this reason that the moon has always been a universal signal, symbol for woman. The moon and Venus, depending on the type of chart, whether it's a day chart or a night chart, and that's another distinction that modern astrology does not make, which it really should. Believe me, folks, it matters whether you were born during the day or the night. But uh, moving on before I rudely interrupt myself, we considering the moon. It rules over everything that grows, everything that's going to come to be. So in astrology, the moon's placement, its behavior, its movement, who it's going to connect with next, is it going to engage in a square with Saturn, or is it going to enter, uh, enter into a trine with Jupiter? You know, where did the moon come from? Is it separating from a square with Mars? And, you know, those sort, all those considerations are vital, especially in answering questions. Uh, and, and, again, in electing to do the right things. That's... You know, my election charts for starting something, they might have terrible aspects in them, but the moon placement will always be spot on. And why? Because the moon has primacy over everything that grows. The ancient cosmology had the planet sort of like traveling in onions, in layers of an onion skin, you see. And each planet had its own layer. Saturn had the outermost layer, Jupiter beneath it, Mars beneath it, the sun beneath it, etc. The moon was at the very bottom. And she was conceived, she was understood to receive the influence of all the other planets, mix it up, and pass it, sort of like beam it down to humanity here on Earth. The moon is alive. You know, this, this actually ties in with something that Sharita frequently says, and she, and she says that the fastest moving planets have the greatest impact over it. Well, the moon's the fastest moving planet. Yes. Oh, yeah. The moon... The moon uh, will cover about two, roughly two, two and a half signs every, or a sign every couple of days. I mean, it's the fastest moving planet, and, you know, for that reason, it's important. Now, here's the thing. Uh, all of our religions are solar religions. That's why astrologers don't, even, even modern Western astrologers don't place as much importance on the moon as they should. Because we do not, as a society, we don't have a lunar religion. We don't have a way to honor the goddess. We've lost that. Uh, and we lost and that with the advent of... That is a fascinating piece because I could go into a whole other show <laughs> right there with that piece because Lunar is honoring the goddess and that is another time that we're moving back into is honoring the goddess right now. So this is going to take well, high, high precedence what's happening with the moon. To, to fail to do that is to invite disaster. Uh, the, the the lunar principle is equally as important as the sun. For example, I was born at night, so I belong to what's called the nocturnal sect. Okay, The concept of sect has to do solely with whether it's a day chart or a night chart. The ancients conceived this as having to do with belonging to a group, a religious group or something, a sect. Right? I belong to the night sect. So in my chart, the moon is a thousand times more important than the sun. The moon is what's called and the, I was the, born the, the, at the authority, ma'am. I was born. I was born at dusk. 
you were born at dusk. Well, you were probably actually born during the day. Now, there are a lot of, you know, don't jump to conclusions about this sort of thing. Being born at night is not necessarily bad or good uh, right. or unlucky or, or even lucky. But, but it's I'm a much more different in- world. Well, I'm, uh, I, I have both. I have both. I, I can say I'm much more influenced by one or the other, but I actually have both. Um, well, you know, the interesting on. thing is that astrologically all of this stuff is centered on uh, the theory of the elements that was given by Aristotle, the idea that there's a fire and air and earth and a water. Now, each of these elements, they have what's called primitive qualities. You know, uh, fire is fiery because it's hot and because it's dry. Water is cold and wet. Earth is cold and dry. Air is hot and wet. Now, the way these primitive qualities translate into human behavior and psychology is that if it's dry, then it's sort of rigid. It's stubborn and tenacious, and it makes distinctions between things. It's prejudiced and it's biased. Now, this could be variously good or bad, depending on the situation. You would want a manager for your business who is like that, but you wouldn't want your mother to be like that. You know what I mean? Or your wife or your husband. Right. Or Right. Nighttime. You want your sales negotiator to be that way, but yeah, not yourself. Sure. <laughs> really. But not, at nighttime, the night is cold and moist. It 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 brings it makes it harder to distinguish between groups, you know, and it makes you more psychic. It makes you more receptive because you you're not really distinguishing so much between between uh, areas. Now, certain planets perform better during the day. Some perform better at night. And we are just, like, our time is gone, quick on. Um, we'll have to have you back on another time, I, I think, uh, and yeah, let sure. you delve, keep delving into all of these things um, that are going on. Uh, <laughs> and Because it's just fascinating. I can go on and on for days and weeks and years on <laughs> astrology because it's one of the first things I, I really delved into that fascinated me. But I, I do want to thank you for coming on the show and give you a, a quick moment here to share with people how they contact you if they, they want sure. to look into things more and learn more about you. Thanks, thanks. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. And if anybody would like to contact me, do it the old-fashioned way. Just call me up, 252-241-8453 is my number, 252-241-8453. Call me up, and uh, I'll let you know if I have uh, room on my schedule to take you on or not. And, and hey, I and enjoyed this, this interview. Yeah, thank this you so is, much for having me. This has been wonderful. Thank you for being <laughs> you. here and giving us your time. And and you have so much insight to share with somebody. And you've got my mind even ticking about some things, um, which is really good. <laughs> it's really good. Excellent. It's going to give me some things to think about tonight. But um, yeah, thank you so so much for being on the show with us and and sharing this huge wealth of information. Well, thank you, and with that, I will bid you a farewell, and also to your listeners, I will bid a fond farewell. Be good to each other, and God bless each and every one of you. Wonderful. And I do want to mention that next week here on Activating Compassion Radio, we have Jim and Ashley Cash of Woven Green with us, and we're going to be taking a look at their music and the other planetary projects that they have going on because there's some really great stuff that they're involved in. Uh, you can check out all of my work, new videos that have been posted, which I post every month around the full moon, um, monthly special, which has to do with my book. The ebook version of Activating Compassion is available for only 99 cents 
uh, this month. So just head on over to my website as well as you'll find archived shows there and uh, all kinds of other things that I'm working on and posting. And, and I should mention, too, we're going to have an extra edition on Thursday next week on the 19th. Uh, we'll be bringing on Mark Daniels and uh, doing a special edition for Weed Out Hate Day, which is coming up on April 3rd. And uh, we have some things going on, and, and he's going to be sharing some different works and the projects that, that he's involved in. And, and Mark has been on my show before, but I wanted to do an extra little special edition for him on this. Don't forget that we've got several shows here on Main Street Universe throughout the week. Monday nights, we have Randy Goldberg doing Vedic Astrology. Tuesdays, we have Susan Weed, who's sharing her work in herbs and natural plants. And right now, she's in the middle of 13 sacred trees, which is a really interesting man. She knows how to pass the information in in a half-hour show. Wednesday nights, we have our flagship show with Daniel and Janice. And they have various different things that they're doing and working with from guests to topics to uh, other things. And oftentimes, that's backed by Spiritual Insights with Darren Bucare, who's also a reader at Madame Mouveau in New Orleans. And then Kevin Barrett is working on bringing in a little show here and there. He's working with a new project of his called New Companion. And, you know, I'm actually going to work on probably bringing Kevin on uh, later during the summertime and letting him share that work with you uh, that he's doing. It's kind of a fun little interesting project he's been working on. And then, of course, on Fridays we have Activating Compassion Radio. Hey, this is Jesse and Nicholas George, and I want to thank you so much for being here today with me. And thanks to all of our listeners, not only on Blog Talk, but also those streaming live on Penn, Parent Encounters Network, uh, StreamFinder, Talking Live, and those catching our podcast at iTunes and TuneIn.com, and those that will catch the YouTube version of our show. Yeah, I do look forward to seeing you back here next week as we delve more into activating compassion. Don't forget that if you've enjoyed the show today, share it with others. It's going to be available at the same link in our archives. And I'm going to leave you today with that song, Yearning For, also known as Over and Over by Shemshai. And again, you can check out all of Shemshai's work on their website at www.shemshai.com. That's S-H-I-M-S-H-A-I.com. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you again next week right here on Activating Compassion Radio. May you enjoy the rest of your weekend and have a truly amazing week. And if I could see what makes me blind, I would soar to the edge of my mind. And to touch what seems unreal, just to show you the way that I feel. And we are in time with time, one with season of change inside. And we are in tune with the tune. Caught in a balance of sun and moon Oh, deep inside The light within Shining to show you It's here to begin When all I have Is all I need I will soar to the edge of eternity We see an eye to eye 
Over and over, life is yours. 